What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Gastroenteritis Blues. My name is Steve Lipman. I'm with Dan Volpone and Emily Anderson. Uh, how are you guys doing? It's good to see you both again. What's up? Hey. Great, Hi. Great energy to start this one. Um, it's a weekend. It's a big weekend. Lots has happened. And we don't even have to watch the Eagles. It's really all lining up uh, for us here um, to uh, just... We have a big guest today. We have Michael Weber, who's coming on the podcast. He's a screenwriter. He wrote Dan's favorite movie, Pink Panther 2. And uh, we are going to talk to him about that and other things. And uh, he's a huge Sixers fan. He'll be on with us in about 10 or 15 minutes. But before that, there is some actual news to get to uh, in terms of the Sixers. The biggest thing, first out, is that the NBA is officially coming back on December 22nd. Uh, free agency is supposed to start very shortly after the November 18th draft, which is already in like basically 10 days from now. Uh, and then training camp, December 1st, they're going to make a trade moratorium. Uh, they're going to have the moratorium lifted on trades like two days before the draft. So a lot's going to start happening very soon. Um, how do you guys feel about the short off season? Do you think it helps the Sixers or hurts the Sixers? How do you think it is for the podcast? Emily, what do you think? Um, I think I think it hurts the Sixers, especially with a new front office, but I don't know that it hurts them like an exorbitant amount more than it hurts anyone else. I just think everyone will feel kind of rushed, but I don't, I'm not like so concerned that we have this new off season. Like maybe it'll hurt them a little more, but not a ton. I'm just yeah. ready to have basketball back already, even though it just went away. I like to have multiple sports going at once and just having football. Like what do I watch during the week? It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it probably, for us, you know, it's like, when are we going to talk to the, to random people? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, I think it hurts us there. Like, any any anybody, like, I feel like you just tell people you have a podcast, and unless they're Keith Pompey, they say, hey, I might come on. So it's like, we could have <laughs> talked to so many cool people. I know. Now we have to talk about the Sixers, who are, who just suck. I don't want to have to interrupt our Guy Fieri episode with basketball yeah. talk. No, thanks. I'd oh, yeah. Just... Can, can, can we invite him? I would love to. I'm, I, I don't think we've talked about this yet, but I'm a huge Guy Fieri fan. I think that he gets shit on like constantly by the internet for no reason. And he's like, he just, out, he's out there having fun and eating sandwiches. I got no problem with him. I like him. He was in Philly not that long ago. Really? He, they, did a, they went to Hardinia. Um, I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. It's in South Philly. It's really, really good food. It's like a little hole in the wall. Was he filming um, the show? Yeah. Cool. 
He went to like Stogie Joe's on Pass Young. He was in like South Philly. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love him. I'm I'm very pro Guy Fieri. So, yeah, uh, good. I'm glad we got all our thoughts on the NBA coming back. That led us us right here. Um, Shams Sharania reported that the Sixers are going to be pursuing James Harden. Do you guys think this is nothing or do you think it's something? Uh, Dan, let me start with you. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, like, who isn't pursuing James Harden? Like, if they said we would train, trade James Harden, like, you'd have to be crazy to not want him. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I, I mean, I don't think it's, it's, it's probably, I'm sure it's true, right? Like, obviously, the Sixers do want him, and I'm, I'm sure they've asked, because why, why would you not? I mean, you should, I feel like, like, if I were, if I were an NBA GM, I would be calling, like, whoever's running the Bucks every day and asking if they'll give me Giannis. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean they're going to trade him, and I don't see... I know, like, everyone talks about, like, Fertitta being, like, super cheap. But, like, it, James Harden just, like, he's, I know people aren't in the stadiums, but they're going to start letting him back, especially they're in Texas. So, like, they already don't give a shit about COVID there. Big time. And, like, the, the jersey sales. Like, he's, he's not – that contract is not losing them money. Like, he's a huge moneymaker. So, I don't see – even if they're not going to have a good chance to win, how, like, they're not going to get rid of him. Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Dan. I think it's, like, one of those – if he's available, the Sixers are interested, but he's not available. So, like, mm-hmm. it is what it is. I think, yeah, it's like James Harden would be great. So would Luca. So would Giannis. So would Anthony Davis. But these people aren't going anywhere. So the interesting thing to me is who reported it because, like, Scoopy and his buddies have been reporting that, like, the Sixers won. You know, Michael KB, whatever his name, the Sixers won James Harden. Sure, but like for it to be. A report from Shams feels a little interesting to me in that, like, of co- like, no shit, everybody wants James Harden. Feels like the first thing he would say to that. And I just wonder if – I don't think that Houston is trying to get off of him at all, but I wonder if somewhere down the line this is the sort of thing that portends a Harden asking for a trade sort of thing. Um, if they prove to be bad, I mean, he's on the other side of 30 now. You would think he wants out. I know that him and Morty work very closely together in terms of building that whole roster. I don't know. For, for me, I don't think it means anything right now, but I think long-term it's interesting to me that somebody as like reputable as Shams would report it. Um, so I think that there might be a little bit more there uh, eventually, but who knows? I don't like it just because I don't want to think about what it would take to get James Harden and it would require us to give up people that I don't want to give up so Horford and and Tobias yeah I know my favorite players yeah right right that would be Mm -hmm. tough broke off and and Brian broke off (laughs) that's what put us over the edge they're like gotta have broke off (laughs) or no deal yeah exactly Mm -hmm. so he's Uh, definitely not on the Sixers right I don't know he hasn't responded to the DM so it's hard to know anything but um if Keith would come on the podcast he could probably tell us just clear this up. Come right on the podcast. We'll talk about Guy Fieri and whether or not you're on the Sixers. Um, uh, Drew Holiday is, is reportedly available. Shams also tweeted about how uh, the Pelicans are openly discussing trades for Drew. Uh, Drew's great. He's super cool. And he was a Sixer. Uh, like he, was the, he was like the thing that started the process. I think he came in and traded Drew for Nerlens and a pick. And um, – I think he's really cool. I don't think he's like a perfect, perfect fit for what the team needs because I think they need probably a better offensive creator if, if possible. 
and like Chris Paul is a better offensive creator than than Drew. But uh, you know, I think bringing him in, him in would be awesome, and he he worked off ball too. So I would be surprised if we have the best offer for them. Um, but if they want to stay still contend but move Drew, uh, you know, who knows? But uh, what do you guys think about Drew and a possibility of him being on the Sixers, Dan? Yeah, I mean, it'd, it'd be great. He was my favorite player when he was here. So, I mean, I agree. He's not, like, he's not the perfect fit. I don't think, like, it would be crazy to think that, like, I know I've, you know, I won't shut up about Chris Paul. And I think that Drew could be fine playing next to him. You know, like, Drew doesn't have to be the guy with the ball all the time. Um, he's he's played off ball plenty. And, um, you know, extremely handsome would be, would fit right in in that way on this very handsome team. Uh, and you know, if we're sending back Al Horford, maybe that's, he's, he's maybe the missing piece, right? Like Zion's a little too exciting. So we need someone to, you know, make the team a little bit less exciting. Like we don't, we don't, we don't want all the bandwagon fans who bring in Al Horford and it's like all the league pass watchers who were like, we have to see Zion are like watching Al clap after his fifth missed layup. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll try someone else. And now they have a respectable number of fans. I like exactly. Um, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, were you, were you, uh, 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 theorizing the possibility of Emily, please. I saw Mm. that skeptical look when I had so many Mm. Oz, I will not have it today. (laughs) I didn't say anything. And, uh, were you theorizing about the Sixers trading for Paul and Drew Holiday? Now he's frozen. Are you happy? Are you happy? Dan looks so happy, though. Great. We have an Oscar Award-nominated screenwriter coming on, and Dan is frozen. He looks so cheerful, though, in his frozen picture, for me at least. He does look cheerful. Uh, I guess we should let him know. Emily, what do you think about Drew Holiday possibly coming to the Sixers someday? I really i am into Dan's idea about... Sending Al Horford to the Pelicans, make that like Sixers South. He can be reunited with Okafor. Not reunited. They never played together, but we'll just send him down there. Mm-hmm. And then this whole like make the Pelicans less exciting. So stand back. That's so back. <laughs> so we that, lost Wi-Fi and cable. That's great. Oh my gosh. So great. the league pass watchers will go elsewhere. So it neat seems like Adam Silver could be involved to bring fans to mm. other markets. And we all know when Adam Silver gets involved, what he wants happens. Therefore, I'm into this idea. I like the perfect guest for that. We do. Have, I was just going to say, <laughs> like, what a great uh, sort of appetizer for bringing on Michael Weber. And he's going to be with us in a few minutes. Dan, when you froze, did you hear the question <laughs> I asked you? No. And Emily froze with the biggest smile. It was just. It was, oh, that's, uh, that's This is so us. So I asked you if you were um, theorizing the possibility of the Sixers not only trading for Drew, but trading for Drew and Chris Paul. Was I correct in that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's, like, likely by any means. I mean, I think because at that point, you're going to have to – one of those teams is going to have to take on Tobias. Right. Um, so I don't think that's, you know, likely to happen at all. But I think, you know, if someone were – if the teams were wanting to do that and – the Sixers, I mean, the Sixers have enough pieces, especially if Tobias is the one in the Paul deal, then I think Horford for, if Horford Drew trade isn't that crazy. And I think Holiday and, and Paul would be pretty good together there. Holiday is 6'4", but he's, he's like, he's a strong player. Like he could, yeah. he could be like respectable too. They're both really good defenders. Holiday wouldn't have to be 
like the primary initiator on offense and um, which I think, you know, not that he could never be like, he's a, he's a better secondary option than like Josh when yeah. Chris Paul and Ben are, are sitting, but you know, it's, it's to, in the starting lineup, it'd be better to have him, I think off ball, which he's, which he's done plenty and is, is clearly comfortable with. So I don't yeah. think it would be, it'd be crazy. And I, that, I think that might be one of the, like that might be like the dream off season that you get. Like, that would be incredible. Yeah. I mean, if they trade, if like the whole thing is they have no guards that can create and then you look up and they have like, and beat and Simmons and now also drew and Chris Paul, you know, I think that they're the Sixers, uh, even though they now have Daryl Morey are dealing from a position of weakness, given the contracts they've given out. So I think, getting that done is probably hard without budgeting like the rest of the decade in picks. Um, but also uh, who cares? Let's do it. I, I'm down. Yeah. That'd be awesome. That'd be a lot of fun. Emily, how was your weekend? Um, my, <laughs> my weekend was good. I'm sad about um, Alex Trebek dying though. I thought you were going to say Trump losing. That was going to be quite a, what a conversation that would be. No. <laughs> yeah, should, we, should we fight about politics or what? Let's do no, it. I don't think there's anything to fight about. Yeah, there's um, probably not. Yes, definitely sad about Alex Trebek. He was the man. Uh, yeah, he's awesome. Upsetting. Um, oh, one other Sixers thing. They have another assistant coach, apparently. Popeye they, Jones. Oh, the guy with the name. We like yes, him. the guy with the name. Popeye Jones from the Pacers. Um, I uh, read on Wikipedia that he was nicknamed Popeye the day he was born. His mother came home with him from the hospital and Popeye was on TV and she started calling her son Popeye. Dan, what do you think about that? Yeah, so unlike Roy Rogers, Popeye's is delicious. So I'm actually really happy about this pickup. Nice. Also, Roy Rogers, I just wrote an article, I hate to brag, I just wrote an article about the Sixers assistant coaching staff and uh, Roy Rogers, there was a Keith tweet about how the Sixers want to hire Roy Rogers and then never another tweet that's like the Sixers are bringing in Roy Rogers. So I wrote a whole thing. We had a whole podcast about Roy Rogers bullshit and he's not even an assistant coach. <laughs> I feel like the Sixers have a lot of assistant coaches right now. Is they it do. just me or do they have a like ton. a lot? I don't know what the normal number is, but it feels lower than this currently. Yeah. I, I didn't know this many names before. I think is yeah. a fair way to put it. Like yeah. I now know of like seven coaches on this staff and, and a lot of front office members. I feel like, like I, I wouldn't have known about everyone in the Sixers front office, mm -hmm. except for the fact that they were like purposely doing this like dumb shit where they had too many people in the front office. Right. But right. on any other, on any other Sixers team, I didn't know all of these front office members. I didn't know all these coaches. I guess I feel like it's, I agree. It's very widely reported on like all, they can't all have significant roles. Like, I don't, I can't imagine that they do. Um, we are now being joined. Hey, uh, we are now being joined by Michael Weber. Hi, I'm Steve. That's Dan and Emily. Uh, we're so happy to have you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me guys. Of course. Uh, that was a cute dog in your picture before your video came on. Oh, thank you. That's Archie. He's, uh, he, he's uh, a process trusting pooch. He's uh, a good boy. We just came from the, the, the dog park where he was causing a little mischief. But, oh, know, wow. I think everybody's a, little, everybody's a little crazy these days. Yeah. So. We're what very kind of pro dog dogs. We love dogs. What kind yeah, of dog yeah, is Archie? Pro dog. He's, um, he's a rescue dog. So I, we, my, my fiance and I thought he was like a, like a Bichon poodle mix. And it turned out he's a peekapoo which we'd never heard of before. Never heard uh, of. 
Yeah, it's a uh, he's uh, mostly poodle and a little Pekingese. Cool. So it's like two stubborn breeds uh, who are who don't listen at all and and are very manipulative. So, so when you say he was starting some trouble at the dog park, is he a combative dog or is he just overly playful? What kind of dog is? No, that? he thinks he's like three times the size of what he like. He thinks he's a big dog and That's he's not, great. and he's like a little thug. And some of the doormen on, 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 in other buildings in my block call him Thug Life. But like, cause he kind of walks down the street and he's like, he's 17 pounds. Like he's not a wow. big dog. Walks down the street like this. And he like, if he sees another dog, he gets very like, like, should I go start with this guy? That's amazing. So all the doormen call him Thug Life, which is hilarious. I mean, I'm sure we're happy with this interview where it is right now. So if you have to go, <laughs> feel free. Uh, I figure, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, uh, I yeah, we can. Pleasure sort of bounce around your career and then we'll get into more Sixers stuff and then uh, get you out of here. However, um, however you guys want to do it. Do you guys, do, is it like, um, do you edit anything later or do we just throw up whatever? We, we can do? if you want to. Yeah. Uh, oh, cool. We generally don't. Um, but uh, yeah, if you, if you say something you'd like to take back or whatever, feel free to let us know and we'll take it. Got out. it. If cool. that whole chunk about Archie is too divisive, I can get rid of it. <laughs> Um, so the first thing I, I think that I'd like to know, just to introduce you to our listeners, and uh, you're a screenwriter. Uh, how did you get into screenwriting? Do you remember the first script you ever wrote? Like, where did it start for you? Oh, wow. Um, I, you know, I, I was a writer as a kid, um, just, just for fun and short stories and, and, and uh, school newspapers and all, you know, anything that I could, that, that I could think of. Um, and then I, I went to Syracuse. Uh, and, and if you know anything about Syracuse, it snows every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also a, a, a fun, a really fun school. And I am, I am not fun. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, I was in my dorm room while other people were having a good time and I was watching three or four movies a day and I liked movies as a kid, but I didn't, I wasn't like a, a movie freak. And then at Syracuse, I just sort of, I, I just kind of, um, became uh, uh, obsessive with watching older movies, especially and foreign films and just kind of my own sort of film education. And my major was uh, television, radio and film. But at the time at, at Newhouse, the communication school, um, it, it's funny, it was called television, radio and film, but you weren't really doing any of those things. It was a lot of theory and a lot, a lot, of, a lot of nonsense. Sure. Um, but I had one great professor named Evan Smith who had um, a legitimate career as, um, as a working screenwriter in Hollywood. And he kind of, he bounced around quite a bit, but he worked on a bunch of different TV shows. And then he also had like sort of a second career as an executive. And his classes kind of changed my life because I, my, my focus went from like um, sort of writing any old thing to like really focusing on screenwriting. Um, and, and learning tools from him that I still use now. Like I, I, um, there is no project I work on without uh, a thorough outline in place. Um, and, and, you know, it's not, there's no set template other than just cramming an outline with as much information as possible. And I think like, um, there's this sort of romantic notion of writing, like, uh, you know, like you're waiting for inspiration to hit and the, you know, the, the temperature has to be a certain, right? perfect, you know, 69 mm -hmm. degrees and that there's a chilled glass of water and a candle and a this and you're, and like, I kind of, you know, one of the things I learned from Evan is like, you just got to do the work and it's sort of, 
it's like anyone can write when they feel like it and kind of building that discipline that comes out of writing all the time and, and making yourself obsessive about it. And kind of, it was nice to be in that bubble at Syracuse where I could do that because like I said, it snowed every day. So right. um, I went from kind of not sure about what kind of writing I wanted to do to, to um, sort of messing around with screenwriting. Uh, I landed an internship at Tribeca Productions, uh, which is Robert De Niro's production company. Um, and then I went to work there as like a temp after college. Um, it's in New York. And uh, I met my still now writing partner and friend, Scott Neustadter there. Uh, he went to Penn. He's from uh, Margate. So he's got a, a oh, cool. big, I, I see your Philly shirt. He's a big yeah. Phillies fan as well. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, at Tribeca, we were both sort of writing on our own, but it was kind of not going anywhere and not, I don't know how serious it was. And we, we just decided, um, I guess I was probably 22, he was 23. And we were like, hey, let's just try to write something together just to see if we could uh, um, complete something and, mm -hmm. and we didn't totally hate it. And uh, we outlined it, we wrote it pretty quickly and we showed it to some friends and they were, and, and it was a really simple story, but it was like, Oh look, we can do a three-act structure and and tell some jokes and uh, and we sort of enjoyed it and 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 it went pretty quickly too. Um, and crazy enough, like um, back then, we never wrote in the same room. Uh, we would jump on the phone or something if there was uh, 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 like problems in the outline. But the outline was mostly done over email. Um, and then we would divide up small batches of scenes. And I, I say the crazy thing was it's kind of still our process now, twenty years later. So. Um, we will outline extensively and divide up uh, little batches of scenes. And that is the very long answer to your question. But it was, um, you know, it started at Syracuse. And then, you know, I, I got, there's a lot of little baby steps along the way. And um, those were sort of the early ones. So then what is the process like for you or for um, you and Scott, when you finish a script that you think is probably about as good as you're going to get it, and I'm sure you get notes and everything like that. What is the process between doing that and getting that into production? Like, what, what are the steps after that that you guys have taken? Well, look, it's different. I think it's different with every project. And it's certainly um, different at the beginning of your career when you're starting out compared to for us now, who we've been fortunate enough to have some things made. Um, you know, uh, I, I think the, the important thing to remember is as, as screenwriters, you have very little control over what happens after you submit your script. Mm -hmm. and whether that's like you're submitting it to your agent and managers and they're shopping it around, or if it's a job you've already been hired for and you're submitting it to the producer in the studio and you're like, nailed it. And then mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, okay, we have a few notes. And then the document comes in and it's like 300 notes and you're sure. like, wow, this is, they want this to be something else. Um, so, you know, the process is different every time. Um, I, you know, um, for us now, um, and with, with the goal being obviously to, to get things made, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, um, early on in your career, of course, that's the goal as well. But oftentimes you're writing also just to have something as a sample to get kind of recognized. Um, I, I do think um, when, you're, when you already know you're partnered with people, so there's already a director, or already uh, producers or a studio, I think it's helpful to have conversations early on to make sure everybody's on the same page of what it is. 
So even if it's even if it's an adaptation, especially you know if it's an original you're collaborating with people with, um, and just so they know um, what you're trying to do, and it doesn't mean you have to necessarily walk them through every creative choice ahead of time. But the the I will say the most frustrating experiences I've had um, since becoming a working writer are the times when uh, Scott and I have sold a pitch. So we had the, you know, the 15 minute spiel of like, here's the movie and here's the characters mm -hmm. and the themes. And then, you know, someone gets excited, they love the pitch and you go off and write it and then you hand it in. And this has happened to us, unfortunately, a few times and you, and you hand it in and then your partners go, what's this? This is not what we, not what we thought. Right. So I, I think, you know, the best way to get your project um, closer to production is ahead of time, make sure everybody's talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then the other thing is also, um, you know, we try to be really hard on the work. So a first draft doesn't read like a first draft. Mm -hmm. It reads more polished than that. And, and I think um, there's an expression called development hell. And it's when a project is sort of stuck and it's in this cycle of you get more notes and you go off and you make more changes and then, and then you turn it in and there's more, they like some of it, but not this part, more notes. And you sort of go through that process seemingly endlessly. Mm -hmm. um, you want to avoid that because I think morale um, wanes and it just gets, it doesn't get impossible to get your project made. It can just get harder. Sure. So we certainly always try to have that first draft not, you know, a first draft is never a shooting draft, but if you can get it to a place that it's really polished and, and far enough along that it's time to add other elements, let's go find a director. Let's go see if we can find mm -hmm. a star. If you're, if you're already at that place off a first draft or a second draft, that's good. That means your project's probably moving forward. So that's cool. Yeah. So I know you said that once you hand your script off, you don't really have any say. It's kind of just like, giving it to the studio and see what they happen. But have you had any influence in any of the casting with any of your scripts? I know like you know, Shailene Woodley was in two of your projects and it seems like a lot of the younger actors all are like around the same general vibe, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I, I think your expectations early on in your career should be that you're gonna have no involvement and no say. And I, I think that's, uh, Scott and I have been lucky to be included in the process more times than not. Um, in, in terms of casting, we, we have been fortunate. Um, you know, uh, I think with some of our early projects, I remember with, um, with 500 Days of Summer, ideas were, they, they, they would run ideas by us. Like, what do you guys think of so-and-so? And we would, we would um, you know, give our two cents, but it didn't, it was not, we were not, um, you know, as, as in the room where the decisions were happening. Mm -hmm. um, as our career has evolved and we are now producers on most of our projects, um, we are, we are um, very central to those conversations. So, so I think like, as you start to have more of a, a, a proven track record, you get to be a little more involved in that stuff. In, in terms of Shailene specifically though, um, the funny thing is uh, Spectacular now started as a, uh, as a studio film and it was gonna be made at Fox Searchlight where we made 500 Days of Summer. Uh, and, and as often happens with studio movies, the people at the studio who sort of uh, uh, championed that project from the beginning, they left and took jobs other places, which happens all the time. And then your project ends up uh, orphaned, really. 
And it doesn't mean it's not good. It just means that the people who were there initially fighting for it aren't there anymore. And like, I think a lot of projects kind of die on the vine that way. Um, and, and Searchlight was nice enough to give it back to us and say, you guys can go make it independently. Just when you put the package together, the director, the cast and so on, bring it back to us. Let us have like one more shot at it to decide if we like the package, but odds are we'll just let you guys run with it. Um, and even then it took us, I think about four years after that to put that movie together. But after The Descendants came out, Shailene was getting asked, I guess, like, what do you want to do next? And she kept talking about our script. And I don't even think we were sure of how she found out about it. Like it was a, I mean, you know, scripts kind of circulate. We don't, I don't really know what. Were you aware of her before The Descendants? No, because I know she had that sort of ABC family show, that, mm -hmm. uh, which like, I, I think I'm probably a little older than you guys. So like, <laughs> I didn't, that wasn't my generation. So I didn't know about that, but I saw her in The Descendants and, you know, like everyone else, my reaction was, holy shit, like, right. she's amazing. Um, and she was talking about our script and really um, that's when that project kind of came off life support. And when we were uh, a year later than that, when we were in Athens, Georgia, shooting Spectacular Now, Scott and I had um, just adapted The Fault in Our Stars. And Shailene used to joke with us on set, like, I'm only doing this movie, so you guys will put me in, in Fault in Our Stars. <laughs> like, we're just the writers. Like, we have no say. Your strategy, we love, <laughs> we love, where, your, we love where your head's at, but like, if only we had that much say. Um, but she really, um, you know, as she was becoming a star in her own right and, and fighting for projects she wanted to do, she was someone uh, very vocal early on for both those movies, just wanting to be a part of them. So wow. um, we just got lucky that way, really, with her. And she's amazing. And I, honestly, we're just like, we're dying to work with her again. Yeah. Uh, earlier, you mentioned uh, 500 Days of Summer. That's an incredible movie. And the final product is really amazing. I'm wondering, how did the nonlinear way of telling that story come about? Was that, did you start with that sort of conceit in the writing process or did you really have the story from beginning to end and then develop the rest of it? No, um, you know, one of the things that happened when Scott and I became friends before we were writing together is we just had the same storytelling sensibility. We had a lot of the same storytelling heroes and we both loved romantic comedies. Like we both loved them when they were, when they're, when they're done well and when they seem to come from a real place. Um, and, and there was a time around when we first became friends where Hollywood, it felt like they stopped making them uh, that way. Mm -hmm. And they were sort of built much more around like wacky trailer moments. And like, you know, he's lying the whole time. He lives in his parents' basement. What if she right. runs out? It's like, you're to launch. Love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we just are very like, but like not that relatable or just like yeah. kind of, um, or like the conceit is just, it's like built on something a little dumb. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so we kind of knew we wanted to do a movie like that because those were our favorite films. Um, and and uh, I, was, I, I was in a relationship. I had a girlfriend at the time for many years and it, it was a relationship that ended up not working out later on. And Scott was very single and we would sort of, we were like telling our own relationship war stories. And then, you know, like everyone does, you hang out with your friends and you're like, oh, this person, and this, whatever. Sure. And we were just found, we kept thinking like, man, all like our own stories are so much more fun and interesting and relatable than the stuff we were seeing on screen. Um, and then Scott 
uh, dated this girl who broke his heart. And he started to have, he had like a diary that he just didn't know where to put all those feelings. Like a lot of people after mm-hmm. a relationship ends, not the way you were hoping it would end. And um, that, it sort of took that, that breakup happening to be sort of the catalyst. But the, um, the telling it out of order, um, I remember we would sit around and talk about movies all the time. And, and I guess Scott had rented, there's a, um, there's a movie called 32 short stories about Glenn Gould, short, 32 things about Glenn Gould. Mm-hmm. Totally. I'm totally botched it. A quarantine brain. Um, <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't even watch the movie. We just, and, and it's a movie told out of order. So we kind of were like, Oh, that's such a neat idea for a, for a romantic comedy. But actually the more we talked about it, um, you know, that's just how memory works. Like it wasn't a device for the sake of let's just, let's just do this for, for shits and giggles. It's like mm-hmm. when you look back on a relationship you went through, you don't remember it chronologically. You kind of jump around. And, and, you know, while it appears on the surface, we went for this kind of like kitchen sink approach with the devices. Cause we got like a narrator and a voiceover and the jumping around and the split screens and a cartoon bird. There's like a, a method to the madness. You, you know, the, the narrator is an older distinguished voice. So, right. um, it's, this is clearly someone later on in life looking back on this relationship, looking back on a, a, a phase of their life. So um, while we love to kind of do the bells and whistles of fun devices, like, like um, telling a story out of order, um, you know, ideally there's like a reason for the device. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, so for us it was, oh, that's just how memory works. That's great. I realize, like, I'm very, um, all of a sudden, maybe it's because I'm like, this is the longest week for all of us, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, week, and um, um, I feel I'm, like, answering your questions as if I'm Brian Colangelo. These, like, 20-minute answers where I'm just like... You're the closest to Brian Colangelo we're going to get on this, so we'll take it. <laughs> he won't answer our calls. He won't no, come on. not lately. Wow, wow. I think he's afraid of us, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry, he's afraid of me, too. I, I, um... <laughs> I basically accosted him at Barclays. Um, God, this was uh, a few years ago. And, and I stopped him at Barclays and I said, um, I said something nice so he would stop for a second. But like, was not, this while he was still GM of the Sixers? Yes, yes, yes. And it, wasn't, it was something nice. It wasn't, like, it wasn't a fake nice thing, like you're doing a good job. Like mm-hmm. it was more like, a, like, it's, oh, great to see you here at the game. Like that kind of. Um, and then I said, um, that I, I've thought about it and I think Brett should get a 20 year contract. <laughs> and he was like, I'm done. And he kind of like pushed off of me Whoa. To, back to his family. And there's a great photo my buddy took of him, like basically giving me like a, like a forearm. Like he's kind of giving me the Heisman um, <laughs> as he's like trying to run away from me. <laughs> Anyways. That, yeah. That's, that's more than we could have ever expected. I'm not surprised that you guys can't get him on the podcast. He's Brian a, Colangelo he's a stiff arming you by the dip and dots is like a pretty amazing story. It's incredible. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you mentioned like being on set for in for Spectacular now, and we wanted to know, mostly me, have you talked sports with Miles Teller? I love Miles. Um, How do I, but I don't know him. <laughs> Miles is awesome. Miles is awesome. Miles is, um, he's, he's fun and he works hard and he's such a good actor. Um, and he's kind of, his personality is so distinct because he's like, 
you know, he, he has, he has person, he has a big personality and, and uh, I just, he's fun to be around. Um, he, uh, interestingly enough about Miles, uh, which we can come back to, um, he, um, he bombed his first audition by his own acknowledgement. Um, and, and he, he was in this amazing independent film called um, Rabbit Hole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as like a kid actor um and so we knew he had it in him we knew how good he can be um and and like shailene he was sort of fighting for the project and there were there were other people it was um because it took almost five years to get that movie made there were a few incarnations of the cast where then just the timing didn't work out and and nick holt almost starred in the movie i actually don't think i've ever told this i don't know if i've ever told this story nick holt um like once or twice, at least once, maybe twice was attached. Um, and then the Fury Road kept getting delayed and the, the, the production for that kept getting pushed back. And then just the timing wouldn't work out that he had to go do Fury Road. And Nick, who's also obviously a tremendous actor, mm-hmm. um, he sent Scott and I an email just saying how bummed he was. And um, then we heard Miles was interested and we were so excited because we had seen him in Rabbit Hole. And his first audition was just not that good. And, mm-hmm. He was like, I, I want to I come back in and do it again. And he came back in and he was incredible. And, and just, he just brought the character to life in a way that surpassed our expectations and really just sort of made it his own. And, and he's brilliant. He's really, um, if you've seen the trailer, uh, you know, Top Gun 2 is supposed to come out oh, yeah. this summer. And mm-hmm. I, I've heard from a few people, it is supposed to be legitimately great. Uh, that he is great in it and um I, I can't wait to see it but yeah miles is a big he's a big phillies fan and um we shot in georgia and miles somehow knew ryan howard and uh the phillies were playing uh the braves in atlanta 40 minutes from athens and and thankfully it was like a weekend series so um he miles asked ryan howard for tickets and and ryan hooked us up with tickets and we all uh Scott and I and Miles and, and, and our, one of our producers went to Atlanta and, and all uh, watched uh, the Phillies lose to the Braves, as they usually do, mm-hmm. um, in Atlanta, which was really fun. Wow, that's, that's super awesome. cool. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Um, recently, you, congratulations, were nominated for an Oscar for the, for the Disaster Artist. I'm wondering what that process is like, sort of the, 
having to politic and, and all of the sort of award season stuff that goes into it. What was that like for you? Are you a natural promoter? Are you good in that way? What was it like? Uh, it's fun. It's crazy. Um, it's, it's weird. Uh, politics is the right word. I mean, it's nice when it's really nice when the, the distributor gets behind your movie because they want to have events and they want to, they just want to get more people to see it and talk about it. And that's how sort of a, you hear the word like campaign mentioned with these things and it is like a campaign. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 and for us, we made a little movie um, that, that ended up getting a lot of attention, but it helps that the, that A24 and they're such, they're so smart and they're such, they're just such incredible people over there just got behind this movie. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they, they sort of launched a full campaign and, and had all these fun events. So, um, I, I worked for Robert De Niro for many years and, and it was interesting to see like when he does press and events and stuff, um, he's not very interesting. <laughs> kind of just, he, uh, but, but I, I say that to his credit because he wisely tends to want to avoid controversy or saying the wrong thing. And, and, you know, I think oftentimes also the people you're talking to for these interviews and events and stuff, you know, they have a job to do. So it's kind of just like give them what they need. And mm -hmm. I remember seeing like Bob kind of on autopilot, just answer these questions that they, you have like a junket where the, where days on end, they're asking you just the same questions over and over again. And uh, Bob just sort of almost become like a bit of, a robot in that situation mm -hmm. but it kind of keep him from getting in trouble um and and then so it was funny where scott and i sort of saw him do that for many years and then we have these sort of events and junkets and things and you want to you you get asked the same questions over and over and over again um and you want to um you don't you know there's part of me that as like just a troublemaker i'm gonna like mix it up and just be like i'm just gonna say something crazy what sure no you gotta like just stay on message and um, answer the question and uh, don't create any controversy. And, um, you know, look, I, I think um, we were very fortunate with disaster artists um, that uh, James Franco, Seth Rogen, like uh, Dave Franco, there were a lot, so many good performances in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ari Grainer especially is amazing. There were so many great performances that, um, those people were the pull for these events. That's, you know, that, that, that to, to go to there and to hear the cast talk about this process. So Scott and I were kind of riding their coattails and then we were very fortunate to end up uh, with a nomination, which was fun and crazy. And, and, and then there's like a whole other round of like events and politicking and kissing babies and shaking hands. And um, it, it, uh, it's wild. It's great. And you get to meet a lot of, um, as like an old movie nerd, you just get to meet a lot of, uh, um, you know, writers and directors that, that you look up to. There's a, there's a nominee um, luncheon every year, uh, a few weeks before the, um, before the main event of the Academy Awards, where uh, no, you can't, you, there's no like guests and stuff. It's kind of just basically the nominees and they announce everyone one by one for like a class photo. Um, and that was amazing. Like I, I, um, I, I walk, I met Paul Thomas Anderson. Like when would mm -hmm. I ever meet him otherwise? Like it's, right. and I told him how um, Boogie Nights was such an inspiration for disaster artists, which is true. Like from our very first meeting talking about like what we wanted disaster artists to be, we kept talking about Boogie Nights and he was so warm and, and gracious. And he said to me that um, he and his kids were walking around the house doing Tommy Wiseau 
impressions after seeing Disaster Artist, which was wow. just incredible. So um, that's that honestly, like that kind of stuff, getting to meet people like that, that you admire, like people who made the films that made you want to do this in the first place. That's the coolest part about the whole, that whole process. So yeah. Um, Me and my fiance also do that, by the way. <laughs> we do disaster artist impressions around the house. So I'm Everyone, sure it means the same, but. It's, you know, I have to say like on our set, um, because Franco was doing it obviously in character and was so incredible, slowly everybody started doing it. It became like a virus that infected <laughs> And you would literally hear like, you would walk by like the, the crew and, and like a, one of the, like someone, like, like a grip would turn to another grip or a teamster would turn to someone else and be like, my God, lunch today. And you're like, <laughs> like, like the, the Tommy voice had infected everyone. Like, no, we couldn't stop doing it. It was spreading. It was, um, it was. Uh, personally, I love movies about old people falling in love and old people in their last chance at love. Can't get enough of it. Tell me about Our Souls at Night. I love uh that movie uh oh, like thank you. yeah so tell me how that came about um i thought it was great that um the, our souls at night which is a netflix movie um was the craziest process because um uh robert redford who scott and i had never met but 500 days of summer um premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. And, and in case if anyone doesn't know, obviously Robert Redford was, was the, the Sundance kid, famously, mm -hmm. which casting the Sundance kid, and, um, and then started the Sundance Film Festival uh, decades ago. Um, Five Days of Summer played at Sundance, its premiere, and Spectacular Now had its premiere at Sundance and sold to A24. So Redford's festival had been very good to us, but we, mm -hmm. we, we never met him. Um, and... Um, the, the uh, woman um, who sort of ran his company, his, his producing partner at the time, Aaron Sims, um, I guess um, they had the, Redford knew the author of the book uh, for Our Souls at Night and Redford said, you know, what about those guys? And Aaron and Redford reached out to our managers. Uh, we'd never met him. And we were like, what? Like, we're, we're even <laughs> on that guy's radar? Like, that's, that's crazy. Wow. Um, and we read the book and we just fell in love with it. And uh, like you said, yeah, it's about, you know, we, we had done so many movies. And this was a movie about last love. <laughs> um, and, and what was really nice, besides the fact, uh, and, and it was always going to be Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. So, the, so, so to work with both of them, um, you know, that was everything to us. Um, but um, it was cool that it was, we love the book. Mm -hmm. And it was, an, it, was a, it was a story of last love that wasn't about cancer or, or no, no one was dying. No one right. was, it just was a little unexpected in that it was like, oh, you know what? It's like never too late to feel that thing again. Uh, and we just loved that, we loved that idea. Um, and to, to work with them was unbelievable because we, um, we would have these notes meetings and, and uh, Jane was always early and Redford, like, you know, movie star was always a little late. And then we'd sit around and they would kind of like kibitz and catch up for a little bit. And that was amazing. Cause you just like, <laughs> just to be in the room and hear them just talk about things in life. And I ran into this person and whatever was unbelievable. Wow. Uh, and then they would give notes on the script and, and they were both so smart and like such pros and they've been doing this forever. And they just like, they're, 
like Scott and I would be like, are, they're paying us to write this movie? This is unbelievable. Like just to work with the two of them. And, wow. And, and the stories they would tell, like it's sort of, um, you know, there'd just be moments where like, Jane would be like, oh, blah, 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 my dad, blah, blah, blah. And you'd have to like pause for like, she's talking about Henry Fonda. <laughs> like, it's just like, like moments you're like, oh, this is unbelievable. So um, yeah, we loved it. Like the fact that the movie turned out so well and is a movie we're proud of is gravy because we just, we were so psyched to work with, with just two living legends. Yeah. So speaking of movies about cancer and dying, <laughs> um, Fall in Our Stars, and you've worked with John Green a couple of times on John Green Works, and we were wondering, how do you, how is that different working on an adapted screenplay? Like, how is it working with John since you've done Paper Towns as well? Um, any stories, anything you have about that? Yeah, we love, we love adaptations. Um, we love um, John Green's books. We were, we were fans before we, we, we got to know him. Um, you know, John has such respect for young people and what they're feeling. And John, both as a person and as a writer, he talks to his readers. He doesn't talk down to them. Um, and, and I think that's why, like, his books aren't limited. They're not, like, like older people love his books just as much as young people. Like, it's just they're for everyone. And, and he's brilliant. And, and he really, um, we, the, the, our, our, our history with John is interesting in that we never met him or we had no communication with him before Fault in Our Stars. And we turned in the first draft and we got this, he had, he, it was sent to him by the producers, the draft. And the, it was an email forwarded back to us. And the email was so long. And, and this is a podcast, so no one can see what I'm doing with my hand. <laughs> like the, the email was like longer than my arm. And we, and, and, and Scott and I were like, oh, fuck. It's like, <clears throat> it, like oh, he must hate it. And, and his, he loved it. And he was so, he was so kind and so encouraging to us. And he, and, and the reason the email was long is because he was, he was so worried about sort of stepping on our toes. So I'll give you an example of like one of his notes was like the, the cancer support group um, meets in the basement of the church, right? Like it's the heart of the, uh, mm -hmm. the heart of the church. Um, and we didn't specifically say like, like we didn't, which is like in scene description, it's not, but so John would ask us, like, I think you should mention that it's the, the basement. But he would have, like, two to three paragraphs, like, explaining why. Like, it was the, the, the I'm trying to remember, oh, God, a quarantine brain. Like, the heart of the base, the heart of the cross, the heart of, there was, like, a heart yeah. expression with the, the basement. Um, but it was just so funny. Like, those were his notes. Like, very cosmetic things. But he wanted, he was so, he was sort of so respectful towards us and, and our craft that, he wanted to thoroughly explain like why that mattered to him. And mm. just really like very, you know, just the kind of guy he is and really a mensch. And, um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is we could never have adapted Paper Towns first because once we got to know John and we were on set with him and, and we just, you know, really developed a real rapport with him. Um, the thing about Paper Towns is we had to make more changes to the book than we did with Fault. Like our job, our job with Fault in Our Stars was 
preserve everything that's in the book um, as much as possible, and maybe truncate the ending of the book a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, it feels a little bit like Hazel's going on sort of another adventure. And you kind of, um, years and years and years ago, Scott and I worked with Ivan Reitman on a movie that never got made. But Ivan drilled something, uh, a line into our heads that, that stuck with us. He always said, know when to get to the fucking curtain. So like that, that really was the only other thing with Fall Our Stars was like, all right, we gotta, we gotta wrap this up. Like after Gus dies, there's, there's only so many like emotional gut punches the audience can take. But when we read Paper Towns, which we also loved, we realized it was gonna require restructuring. So if you remember Paper Towns in the book, like the prom is in the middle. Mm. Like there's just a lot of, um, uh, um, the, 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 like certain information comes out at different time and we thought, um, oh, we wanna, we kind of have to restructure this a little bit. And, and I think because we were so respectful to the source material and Fault in Our Stars that when we talked to John and we were like, we have to deviate in certain ways. John was so like uh, encouraging. I trust you guys. I trust you're gonna preserve the spirit of the book. So, and if you if you swerve too far, we'll we'll course correct later. So, um, John was amazing. It's really um, I could have just answered this question in a non Brian Colangelo way and been like, <laughs> he's the best. He's exactly what you'd think based on reading his books and and you know seeing him speak, but. I, I wanted to give you some long anecdotes, but we love the guy and um, uh, yeah, we, we hope we get to work with him again one day. Yeah, I love the long answers. Those are some of my favorite books. I read uh, Fall in Our Stars on Spring Break. It's really a good spring break read and uh, <laughs> Sobbed on the Beach in Jamaica is good. My, uh, must have my, been a fun hang. I'm <laughs> real fun. My, my good friend, um, he read... He read the book, he read Fall in Our Stars on my recommendation on a plane ride to Vegas for a bachelor party. Oh, God. And he showed up at his, like, friend's or brother's bachelor party, like, hysterical crying, which always yeah. makes me laugh. It, it, it'll get you. Like you said, it's a gut punch of a book and a movie. But um, So one last movie question, then we'll move sure, into sure. Sixers. Even though I could talk movies all day, especially Spectacular Now, it's my favorite movie. Oh. Um, it really is. But so we got into an argument about La La Land in our group checks the other day. So we were just curious without telling you who's on what side, what are your opinions on La La Land and particularly how it ends? I love La La Land. And I, I am not scared to, um, to tell you that I don't love certain movies. So this is <laughs> not me being uh, like covering my own ass. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I was fortunate in that I saw La La Land early. Like I didn't, I didn't see it at Toronto. I think the Toronto Film Festival, I think is when people first started seeing it. But I saw like, I think I saw like the first screening in New York. There was like kind of a, uh, an early screening well before it came out. And I loved it. I, I loved the music. I loved the performances. I, I, um, I, it really, I, I even, I found the ending moving. I actually I really like the, the sort of like seeing how the life would have been that like, I just, it took me. I will say, look, I, um, I, you know, we're all, um, I don't care what anyone says. Like, I think hype impacts all of us in different ways. And I think like there are movies you hear too much about and then you finally see it, like you go in and it feels like homework or you go in and you're like, well, it's not gonna live up to everybody's this or whatever. Like you, cert- I think like the chatter 
can impact your the the, the like your mindset going in, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, so so look, I, would I would, would, like I'm not some robot who could be like, oh yeah, no, I just always tune all that stuff out. You can't help it sometimes. Now I'm not. I'm like very spoiler sensitive, and I'm very. I try to not read reviews and stay away from things that I already know I want to see. Mm-hmm. So the buzz on La La Land, people were raving about it. And then there were some people who were a little critical out of Toronto, but uh, there were enough people raving about it that I was like, ooh, I'm excited for this. And I thought the trailer was awesome. And I loved everyone involved. I fucking loved Whiplash. Mm-hmm. Like Whiplash is, you know, speak, you know talking about Miles. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think Whiplash was my favorite movie, whatever. I don't remember what year that was, but like Whiplash was my favorite movie that year. Yeah. I just, so, so I was like predisposed, like, oh, I'm excited for this. Yeah. No, if I had seen it in, if I had waited, that's so, that means I probably saw that movie in September. If I had waited and seen it in February around the Oscars, like, I don't know, maybe I just would have been like, maybe I think I, I still would have liked it, but I think my enthusiasm maybe would have been different or my expectations would have been different. And, and you can't, you can't help it sometimes with that stuff. So I am pro La La Land. I, I, um, I both enjoyed that movie and admired that movie. Um, yeah. So just to give you a little context, because you may be curious, maybe not. Uh, we were live texting during The Bachelorette. Thank you. And uh, we, <laughs> something came up about La La Land and Emily hated the ending. I happen to love the ending. And uh, it turns out I'm right. All right. So, <laughs> uh, you have written over your career a good deal about heartbreak. And you were also a big Sixers fan. Do you see a correlation there? Oh, oh my God. Are you kidding? Like, sort of, I feel like, and, and I think there's actually something about my age as well, because um, I was born in 78. So I was obviously too young for the Phillies in 80. And all of my sports memories start after the Sixers won in 83. Uh. So you think about that for a second. Like, I, I, I was 30 um, when the Phillies won in 2008. Okay. So like, that's a, that's really, that's a lot of years of, and like you talk about like, you know, how disappointing the Eagles were during a lot of those, that, that sort of, you know, the, 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 you know, Buddy Ryan and Rich Kotite and, and, and what came after. And, and, and then, you know, the Flyers were always good, but then would just sort of break your heart in the end. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the Phillies were really, really fucking bad for most of my childhood. Um, and, and then the Sixers were, just so mediocre for most of my, so this is a long way of saying, um, yeah, I was really used to, I was used to mediocrity. I was used to disappointment and I was used to heartbreak. It was like mm-hmm. a, like a platter of all three was Philly sports fandom. And, and, and I think about, you know, um, Philadelphia fans who are a little older than me, just a, like a little bit older you know, they had all those amazing Flyers teams in the 70s and they were old enough to remember 1980 and 83. So like, you, 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 ha- you had it. And then, then Philadelphia sports fans who were a little younger, you cert- they like, you know, the Phillies and Eagles, like you had, like, there's something about the like, the Gen X Philly sports fan that you like, <sighs> <laughs> like it, yeah, yeah, it really, um, it sucked in a lot of different ways for most of my life. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, maybe in some ways, like it helped me with the heartbreak and and sort you like, but it's a different kind of heartbreak than, um, than I think like the heartbreak of a relationship. 
uh-huh. because, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like there were times where the Eagles would, some of the Andy Reid teams would break my heart. And I just remember being like, fuck this franchise. And I remember for a lot of years saying like the Eagles were the worst relationship of my life. <laughs> um, Cause I just like kept going back for more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Now I'm talking myself into, no, it's exactly the same. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's exactly the same. It's really, it's, um, but like, I have a, I have a, a, a fiance now and I, I'm like, I've never been in a better relationship and, and, and I both also have now experienced winning of Philadelphia teams, although obviously I'd like to see the Sixers and, and Flyers, uh, have a parade. Um, so, so yeah, I'm in a better place. On both fronts. Glad to hear that. Yeah. I definitely think it is, um, I definitely think, and my, my friends and I talk about this, my friends like of my generation, that since the Eagles have won, we do not take Eagles losses. Like shitty Eagles losses bother me like a fraction of what they once did. We were talking about that before too. We, yeah. we agree. So mm-hmm. just not, doesn't, it doesn't like, you know, there used to be like a, like like a, an emotional hangover from those losses yeah for days oh um, worse and, and and some of those nfc championship losses during the reed era the the emotional hangover was weeks. yeah um so it, you know it, it's nice like there's a there's an emotional burden that's lifted after you get a parade so i don't know what the relationship equivalent of that is like that there, there's not a there's not a parade and then you go back again. Like it's not a, um, it's not like, it's like being like, it's like saying your second and third divorce are like, aren't as painful than your first. I, I don't know. I was about to go to some weird places there. So, yeah. It's a tough analogy. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't fully hold up. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about, you know, so I'm, I'm of, of the, of the mindset that no matter how much good Adam Silver does the rest of his time as commissioner, he can never be forgiven for his role in, Sam Hinkie leaving the Sixers. So I'm a little bit jealous that you, you know, famously got to, got to yell at him in person for that. And I wanted, I wanted to ask you, you know, how you decided to do it. Like, did you hesitate? Like, how good do you feel about it now? And like the oh, aftermath, oh, okay, like okay. everyone's reacting. So I have to clear up the record on this, but I will say I feel great about it. I mean, <laughs> there's, no there's no regrets whatsoever. There was no yelling. It was actually, in fact, entirely calm and civil that almost sounds worse if i'm adam silver you know no it's true and i think like again like i I, you know he and his sort of cronies um sort of chuckled at my hinky die for our sins shirt and and you know they had a nice little laugh about that and then and it was but i kept a a very moderate tone which you're right like maybe that's scarier but it wasn't there's no reason like i didn't want to get thrown out of the building we were at a playoff game Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I just, I wanted him to know, we know what he did. We know his role in this and we're never going to forget it. And that this is our guy. I will say the one thing I'm going to disagree with, um, uh, I don't, I, I don't think that will ever be forgiven, but, um, you know, I, I will say the fact that Maury is sort of the, 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 um, in the family tree with Sam like if we end up winning with Maury, it doesn't forgive that because you don't you don't know if it would you don't know if we would have won one with Sam. You'd like to think, 
and 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 obviously I'm like a firm believer. It's not like it's not like Hinky's this the thing that drives me crazy are like and who who write this way, and then a lot of media, national media people, this idea that like, well, Hinky can only do one thing. Right. We only like this idea that like that's all he was able like that's what he would do anywhere he would go, or if the, if he had if 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 like um, you know if ownership had not caved to pressure. Pressure, let's say, from, from I think, a few angles, because I don't, I think pressure not just from, from Silver, but I think pressure from, from the agent side, because we weren't giving out, you know, big, dumb, mid-level contracts. Yeah. And that, you know, if other teams started doing that too, that could be very threatening to that, that agency business. Um, uh, but I, I think, like, um, you know, I'd like to think Sam would have proven he can switch gears and, and sort of lead a franchise when they're in the next phase, but he just wasn't given the opportunity. Um, I, I, so while it will never be forgiven, um, I, you know, I'm not going to dwell on that as much if Maury puts us over the top with like, you know, the most important pieces Hinky gave us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, f- fair enough. So I guess, I guess, you know, sticking with the same era there, um, if you take Joel out of the picture, who was your favorite, favorite sixer from, you know, back in the, back in the process days? And do you, do you like still follow any of them past that on their new teams? A thousand percent Covington, like just Covington all the way. <laughs> You're right at home I, here. I, no, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I love his story. I love how hard he worked. I love, like, I just, um, I, I loved his sort of, um, lunch pail demeanor to the game in general like he just would like show up every day and just like work his ass off and um i i loved uh, you know how hard he worked uh, like like the the fact that like he was finally you know getting a lot of uh, um attention for his defense and and it wasn't just about shooting and just started like really um I, I i loved everything about his game i loved his demeanor i i loved his story i just and and it felt like he had respect for our community because we understood how special he was. And I liked that. I thought that was, you know, they showed up to the, to the, um, to the um, lottery party, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just like there was, there was, it was mutual. Um, that was cool. So that was my guy. I was a, and even when he had that bad series against Boston, like I was defending him and um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I miss him. I hope he comes back. Like I think, yeah, I, think I miss him too. I think it's like not wildly out of the realm that he will return at some point. He's so, a Maury guy. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Something about when like parts of Sixers fans started shitting on him made me like dig my heels in more. And like when he became a divisive figure in some way, I loved him even more because I felt like we are right. And it's fun to have something you write about. Um, yeah, I, I thought like, um, I didn't really understand people who turned on him and wondered if they ever really understood what it was about. They were also critical of him as if like, he, you know, he was Clay Thompson. Right. Like, like coming up short in a playoff series, like, like th- that we lost that playoff series is not on Covington. Like, it's not like, like wouldn't even crack the, look, could, would things have been different if obviously Covington like had played out of his mind in that series? Mm-hmm. Sure. But, like, the, to me, that wasn't even, like, a top three reason we lost that series. So, I don't – and, I, you know, Philly's always been a weird town about 
um, expectations on stars, and then even expectations on guys getting paid. Like it's, yeah. it's and I, I, you know, um, like I'm old enough to remember like Mike Schmidt getting booed, and it's just like what? <laughs> and like I was too, I was too young to understand it, but old enough to be confused, like what the fuck by mm-hmm. it? Because here's like the greatest third baseman in the history of the game, like one guy can only do so much, especially in baseball. But right. um, the sort of that anti-Covington crowd was fucking nonsense. Yeah. Um, to, uh, to sort of marry your two big things here, have you ever thought of writing a sixer into a script? Think of like a light rom-com starring Casper Ware. I'll let you marinate with that for a minute. Um, and also, uh, have you considered writing just an overall dramatization of the process? Uh, yeah, what do you think? Um, no on the dramatization of the process. Um, uh, but, but, um, you know, um, I, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in Airplane is, he's brilliant. Like, Mm -hmm. he is a brilliant comedic performance. And I just, I just rewatched Airplane a few months ago during the pandemic because it's such like, it's, it is, it is like, you know, like a to cure the lockdown blues that movie mm-hmm. is amazing um and, and very inappropriate i know and parts of it have not aged well but Kareem abdul-jabbar is so brilliant so yes i'd love to if joelle wants to to be in a movie that would be my pleasure scott and i wrote a romantic comedy years ago that was set in um the world of baseball and it didn't none of the main characters were players but the main character was like director of communications for a baseball team. And he was like a young guy who was sort of uh, uh, perpetually single and like kind of living more like a boy than a man with his mm-hmm. attitude towards dating and relationships. And he wasn't, he wasn't a douchebag. You actually really liked him. He had that sort of Paul Rudd likable vibe, but he's just was sort of refusing to grow up in certain ways. Um, and it felt very fitting to have him like in the world of baseball. And he kind of was jockeying to become like president of an organization. And at one point it was, um, Charlie Day was attached at one point and we oh, were cool. setting it. And it was set in Philadelphia and then Charlie Day became attached to it. And he's like, I can't, like I'm too associated with Philadelphia already. So we changed it to Seattle. And then the movie never got made. Um, <laughs> but we would have needed a couple of real baseball players for it. Um, but yeah, I would love to have um, some Sixers uh, uh, in a movie one day. Yeah. Um, who would be like of the last like six years, who do you think, who do you guys think like has acting chops? Because like, you know, I, we can, there are recent movies that have had NBA players in it. And like, not everybody's like a natural actor. Like, by the way, Ray Allen, I hated him as a player, pretty solid actor. Yeah. That guy can act. Um, who from the recent years of the Sixers do you think has some acting chops? Well, I mean, so Bobon was in John Wick 3. Oh, yeah. You're right. I Joelle, forgot. Yeah. And, jo- and Joel was supposedly supposed to be an uncut gems instead of Garnett, which would yes. have been so cool to see. Right. And they could have I, maybe so, picked a less heartbreaking series for the movie, which I loved besides that. So <laughs> I will say um, I, I heard that. I, I think I don't know if like I heard they wrote it for Joel. I don't know how far down the lo- road they were with like actually casting him in it. Right. I will say, like, I love that movie. I love Uncut Gems. The, like, the popping up to New York from Philly 
during a playoff series um, felt like that was one thing I was like, oh. right. Yeah. Like, like you could tell, like it would have worked better if it was in Philly and like, you know, and if like the, the Sandler character worked for like L Pavorsky, like that would have made a lot more sense. <laughs> Some of the, like the bending of reality there would have, but, but I, I'm nitpicking a brilliant movie. Uh, yeah, you're right. Maybe Joel. Joel's so good on social um, that like, you know, I'd love to do like, um, like, like a, a sequel to Ronin, some kind of like a cool or, or like a, a, um, some kind of cool international thriller type movie where Joel mm-hmm. could like drop some French also. Like it's like, like the fact that he sp- like speaks so many languages yeah. like could actually be like a, a, like a plot element would be cool. Yeah. Well, I don't yeah, know if you guys sure. know this, but Namdi Asamoah is like a really good actor right now. So I'm thinking really? Al Horford also signed an awful contract. <laughs> maybe he's a good actor. He's not good at basketball, but maybe he's a good actor. I, you know, I'm not, um, this might be crazy. I'm not as anti-Horford. And I'm now saying, you're on the wrong I, podcast. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want Horford on the team anymore. Yeah. But like, I would not be shocked if Horford goes somewhere else and it's a better fit and we're like, Oh my God, like this Renaissance, whatever. Like, why didn't he, you know, it'll be like the low hanging fruit of Philly commentary to be like, why didn't he do that here? And it's like, you know, the fit wasn't right or whatever, <laughs> but I hear you. Yeah, maybe Namdi has found a, um, a, a new career. Um, yeah, maybe Horford could do it. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess to, to wrap up a bit, I mean, a lot has happened in the last month, two months. Yeah. Uh, Exciting. Changed. Yeah. So how are you feeling? I guess just going forward about everything. Cause I mean, there's, there's too much to ask about anything specific, but just everything with the new direction of the team. I was feeling good about the doc hire, but not, I wasn't over the moon. Mm-hmm. Cause, and I have to say like, I didn't love any of the names that were being thrown around, but I thought, man, it would have been really great to have a coach who, you know, was just sort of an, a known offensive mind that like, you're like, Oh wow, this guy's like a genius at, you know, creating spacing and other, like, like some, some like mad scientist type, like, and, and I, again, like here I am speaking so generally with like, not, I guess D'Antoni kind of fits that a little bit, but like, man, D'Antoni's also had some stops where it has not worked yeah. out. So, um, you know, I, I, I liked the doc hire, but then when, when the Maury thing happened, I was like over the moon. Cause you know, you think about this, like, you like, if you had a, if you owned a basketball team, and you needed uh, uh, someone to run the basketball side of things. Like he's top three. Like there's just no, like like he's in that top tier, and that that gap between the sort of next tier people you could hire is the Grand Canyon. Right. So you know you, if you want to put Ainge in there, if you want to put Pat Riley in there, I guess. But he's seventy five. Like there's like Maury who hasn't won yet, which I also kind of love because mm-hmm. they're just so motivated too. Um, I mean, besides like he also just seems like an awesome guy. Um, yeah, he's super and, cool. And I think like one of the other things about the Maury hire that has me so excited um, that um, maybe you guys have talked about it, but like I feel like hasn't been discussed enough everywhere. You know, when you hire a guy like this, he hires smart people up and down the line. And it's just like his success is because he's brilliant, but also because he's not afraid to be surrounded by other like really smart and talented and, you know, different minds. And, and I loved, um, you know, that, that, that he's so good at, 
pinpointing that talent on, on that side of things that we're going to now have like a whole bunch of people inside the organization making really smart decisions at a bunch of different levels is so exciting because, you know, I remember when, when Sam was first hired and, and there was a lot of talk about like, um, it wasn't, it wasn't, the talk wasn't replicating Houston necessarily. It was actually like replicating the Spurs that the Spurs had this. And, you know, part of that was with Brett, obviously, but the, 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 the idea of like creating like a pipeline of international talent of having, you know, really, you know, scouts who were specialized in all these different things all over the place and just kind of, I love the fact that Maury's track record is like hiring other talented people for all these other positions underneath him. That's so exciting that we're, um, uh, that, that like to build that kind of strong organization because, you know, we're selfish. Like we don't, I, yes, I want one parade, but I also want six parades. Yeah. Like I want, you know, like I want to, I want to have like sustained excellence and, and, um, and, and become one of those franchisers. Like where do they keep finding these guys? Mm-hmm. And, and that's exciting. So um, I, I have to say like, I was feeling a lot of Sixers fandom fatigue, even when like, when the bubble started. Yeah. And then just was yeah. not surprised that the playoffs went the way they did and just sort of, and, and I, you know, I watched the games, but I just was like emotionally half checked out already. Um, this, the, the Maury hire is like, I'm, I'm like a, it is like a, a Sixers fandom baptism. <laughs> where I, I feel reborn. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so, so excited. And the fact that the draft is next week is awesome. Cause you know, Maury was just scouted. Like he's not, he, he went to like, he was out of the game for a while. Like, right. you know, he, he was watching stuff. So uh, yeah, this is, this is a really thrilling time. I'm, uh, I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, we talked about now just to be able to have this sort of implicit confidence in them making smart decisions. Whereas like two months ago, I would just be terrified of any move they make because they might get embarrassed any second. Um, and when you talk about him hiring people, we've talked about that with Doc's assistant coaches. Like, yeah, yeah. there's no reason for Doc to be threatened by anybody on his existing coaching staff because of the stature he has in the league. So, no, I was a little worried. Like, I admit, I was a little worried when they hired Doc because so much of the, um, so much of the 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 commentary about it from a certain segment of fandom and media was like oh, this is the rah-rah guy who's going to finally get Joel to this and that and whatever. And it's like, shut up. Like, mm-hmm. it's, like that stuff again is like, not, not, that's not, those aren't the top issues with the team right now. So um, I love who do, the, the staff that Doc has put together. Actually, like the, the um, Burke from, from Indiana, like yeah. in some ways, um, I, I said this to Michael then, I said, you know, the, uh, <laughs> Hiring the guy who hates the Sixers <laughs> feels more us than hiring Maury. Yeah, that's a good point. That's so a very good um, point. this is this is like this, all of this. Like I can't wait for the new season to start. Yeah. So Dan, I'm, Emily, sad, I'm sad we're not going to be watching it in person. That's the real. I know. Real, yeah. So. Um, if you guys have anything else for Michael, um, I think that that's pretty much it for us. Thank you so much again for for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Do you have anything that you'd like us to help get the word out about that you'd like to promote anything? Uh, I, I, I am, 
I just finished adapting a book, a novel. So if you like those other books we talked about, um, you're going to love this book. It's called Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. And I'm not going to spoil it. And just, it's not a YA book. It's brilliant and it's funny and sad. And it's just all the things you want to feel during a, a great book. And uh, Scott and I just adapted it. And James Ponsolt, who directed Spectacular Now, is going to direct this one. Cool. And we're hoping to, uh, we're going to put the cast together very soon and uh, try to, you know, we can kind of put it in a bubble maybe and, and try to shoot it next year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited about that. But if you want to, um, if you're looking for a great book to read during the pandemic, Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. Cool. Beautiful. Great. Well, awesome. thank you again for, for spending an hour with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, and congratulations on all your success. And uh, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks so much. Bye, guys. Thank you. Take care. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.